everybody. We're uh, delighted to be joined by the creatives behind a horror movie called The Old Ways, which is on Netflix right now. Uh, we have producer and returning guest, Missouri native, mm -hmm. Justin Ross. We have the screenwriter, Marcos Gabriel, and the director, Christopher Allender. Thanks, guys, for coming on. Yeah, Hello. thanks for having us. Yeah, thank, uh, thank you. Thanks why don't we start us. by uh, just telling us about the movie? Who wants yeah. it? That's Marcus. Mar Marcus. That's you, Chris. Me? Non-Missouri native Marcus Gabriel? <laughs> yeah, man. They want to hear from the local stars first. Nah, um, nah, nah. So The Old Ways is about a, uh, a journalist named Christina Lopez, who's from uh, originally from Mexico. She has been kind of distanced and cut off from her culture. She returns there to a land of Veracruz in search of kind of uh, local uh stories about witchcraft and brujas and you know things going on there while she's there she gets kidnapped by a few locals who believe she has a demon inside of her and they won't let her go until they've properly exercised the demon so that's on the surface the uh the promise of the scares of the the old ways <laughs> well i i got to catch it at a panic fest um back in okay. uh, was it may um, yeah. it was actually the yeah. first movie I got to see, uh, af af after like what a year being oh, awesome. down. So, oh, uh, in the theater you saw yeah. it on the, oh, exciting. Yes. So, uh, so it could have been that. anything and you would have been like, this is glorious. Yeah. 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 I was really, I was caught up. <laughs> 90 minutes of images yeah. and sounds. Wow. Look how projected it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but it was, I, I did really enjoy it. Obviously enjoyed the experience too. So, uh, oh, thanks man. But, uh, I, want to ask first off uh back to marcos what what inspired the uh the story for you well um you know a lot of the inspiration for the story came from i, I was born in puerto rico and uh, i've had the pleasure of you know being able to experience a lot of my culture in, in different ways but my mother had uh, told me some really fascinating stories about her growing up on the island about brujas and about you know people believing they were hexed and you know had curses on them and things like that and that I remember just being so fascinated by that because I was raised Catholic and those ideas of you know this other kind of spirituality and these other kind of cultures and traditions um, really fascinated me and it was something that she had shielded me from most of my life and then kind of revealed to me so I knew if we kind of took that point of view of a different um, cultural point of view, Latin, Hispanic point of view, um, and told an exorcism story, we could avoid like all of the tropes you see all of the time in those kind of movies. And, you know, like the priest comes in and he's got a letter and he's like, okay, somebody told me we can investigate and here comes the Bible and the holy water and then this, you know, vomiting, uh, <laughs> the pretty the standard stuff. And we thought, okay, what if we just rooted this in a different culture? Um, and see what happens. And it was just like a really fascinating exploration into real rituals, into um, a lot of research into the area. And we'd find that I had, you know, like there were a lot of things that I culturally connected to. And I thought, I wonder if other people will feel the same way. And then as we'd bring in cast members and other producers, you know, we have a producer from Guatemala and people from different points of view, they would have their own stories and connecting uh, connective tissue to this kind of approach. So that's when it was like, oh, this is going to be super cool if we can, you know, we're not the only ones with this. And there's a bigger uh, cultural connection to these kind of um, rituals and practices and just thought processes. Sure. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like after I watched The Outsider on HBO, it's mm -hmm. like they and like that culture had like La Cuca. And so it seems like every yeah. like kind of Latin community has their boogeyman or whatever it might yeah. be. So, I mean, you obviously grew up with, you know, that, those stories and mm -hmm. that just stay with you for a long time. Is this something that you've been thinking about, you know, as a storyline for a really long time or did it just, you know, come to you in the last few years? No, absolutely. It was something that gestated for a long time. And like, you know, it's funny, there's the different cultural approach. Like my mother would tell me, you know, someone would have, <laughs> someone would come out the front door and see like, rotting grapes on their front steps and would say like somebody just put a curse on me and this is what's happening and then someone else would be like i think the dogs just took that from the garbage and left it here on your front porch so but to grow up with those kind of like this is a this is a thing that's real that exists in our day-to-day -day life these spirits or you know um hexes and things like that 
And we've all as a society grown away, you know, pulled away from that. And, you know, it's all very technical and science driven and we understand things. And so the approach in this movie was like the old ways are still there, but the people that maybe fight back against them or stand back against them are also dying out. So what's going to happen when they're gone and who will replace them? So um, this, the kind of approach for this story, I was always like, anytime you see a story from a different cultural point of view, like the whaling or like you said, Lakuka or whatever, like it, you get excited by it. Cause it's like, wow, I'm seeing something I haven't seen before or heard about before. And so with this movie, it was very much like, it was always in, on my mind in different ways. And I think oh, someone else is going to tell this story um, eventually. And, and sometimes that's really the energy it takes um, to bring something forward. And for us, it was like, Chris and I are always looking for a cool project to do together. We've known each other since we were 19 years old, since we went to college together. And this felt like, okay, wait, if we could do it at this scale, if we could tell this kind of story, I think this will all fit. And as long as Chris is down to direct it, I think we can like make something super cool. Awesome. What's it like um, making movies with your buddy that you've known for a really long time? <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's great. I'll let Chris speak to it, but I'll, quickly, it's like, what's awesome when you get to make a movie with a friend, especially a friend that you've known for 20 something years or whatever. Has it been 20? No, it's been less than 20. Has it been more 20, than 20 years? Uh, 25. Holy crap. 25 <laughs> 20, years. 26. What year is this? 21? Yeah, it's been, um, <laughs> I would say next month, it'll be 26 years. We yeah. met um, 1995 at the Florida State University. When we yeah. were, I was, we were actually, well, I was 17. You were 18. Oh man. I see. I, <laughs> I don't remember any of the details, <laughs> but you know, what's cool is like you grow up with the same kind of cinematic language. I mean, anyone who makes movies, anyone who loves movies um, and has a group of friends that they watch movies with starts having the same like cinematic language where you just like describe things as shots or directors, you know? So like early on we'd shoot a short film and it's like, Oh, we're going to do like the Robert Rodriguez thing, like a super fast cut and then whatever, this is going to be one of those shots from that movie. So when you have a shared cinematic language, that's super fun. And then also like in writing it, you know, I was thinking of Chris the whole time uh, because I wanted to write. I love genre horror. I love scary movies and gross movies and stuff like that. And Chris also loves those things, but he also had, there's like a really strong world building element to the things he likes to approach, or there's a strong fantasy element. So as I was putting the script together, it was like, oh, this will be something Chris will like, like to dig into, I think. And so when I started the script, I wrote the first 10 pages very quickly, 10 to 20 pages very quickly and showed it to Chris. And I was like, hey man, does this look like a thing you would, you think you'd want to do? And he was like, yeah, this looks super cool. And then that just kept, we kept the discussion going the whole time, not only from this early script stages, but like developing it the script right before shooting the whole time Chris would find a cool piece of research or information and then it would like jump into the script so yeah it's super fun I mean he's a super great director that's very very collaborative and very open to ideas not just from me but from like every single person on the crew um, including T. Justin Ross who only has bad ideas <laughs> just kidding T. you know I, so many ideas. digs at t justin <laughs> i know I, the missouri native yeah. he just kept trying to get kansas city barbecue into the shots and stuff Can yeah, you blame like, him? this is not no. culturally correct uh, oh you mean he's trying like to bring joy to everybody and you guys are mad about that <laughs> what about in this scene instead of having really? the cornmeal she eats Kansas right. City barbecue. I feel like some of those blood scenes, yeah, some of those blood yeah. scenes, you could have easily yeah. used some that of that was, barbecue. That was yeah, all barbecue red, sauce. Sure. Yeah. KC masterpiece yeah. every day. <laughs> now Gates, it's all Gates. <laughs> or Arthur Bryan's. You know, one thing I'd add is that Marcus was saying that, um, you know, they developed this and it was a constant process. But the cool thing about having these two being it's so in sync was that on set, they were still kind of riffing and, and, and staying engaged and tweaking the script every day. And, and if they saw a potential opportunity, they could both kind of tag team that thing. So while Chris is working with the actors, Marcus would be there watching uh, Tap and Video Village and Russian there and kind of like whisper something in his ear and they'd, they'd fine tune it as they go. And that's, that's a luxury that a lot of productions don't get. So that was really cool. And I, I think that's only something that comes from a relationship, which is so, you know, uh, deeply rooted and, and just kind of understanding the other creative. 
Sure. Yeah, I mean, like most people write scripts with like an actor in mind, but I love that you're kind of writing a script with your director buddy in mind on what he would like and what you would be good at shooting. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly, and as you get to different levels of screenwriting, I mean, that's, a, you know, you will be paired up with a director if you're lucky enough to get hired on a studio picture or something like that. And then the director will have a vision and you do it. But there's the level of trust is really in that, like, I know it's going to be dope no matter what. So even if Chris is shooting something that's super different from the script, which always happens, like you get on set and the director, uh, the, the actor wants to stand here and not here and the blocking doesn't work and the thing we were, you know, on page is different. I have full trust in um, in what he's going to carry off. And then we also get very deep into like the editorial process and VFX. So we, you know, like there's a lot of times where, you know, he'll kind of look over and be like, I think we have something here. Like we can probably <laughs> cut something together. And it's like, yeah, I think I agree um, that you have it uh, here. So yeah, it's like, it's the trust is really what it is. Like if you have broken trust with someone, then every decision they make is the wrong one. You're like, fuck the did it again they messed it up but yeah that's not the case at all yeah it makes it easy to 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 edit or you know not not like the movie editing but editing choices and editing ideas because there's not like a lot of censoring going on where we can just you know look at something and say this this sucks <laughs> or this doesn't work and it's not like oh was it you know when you're working with a new collaborator you're kind of hedging your uh, critiques and stuff like that and there's just kind of a shared mm. sense of ownership and it's like I'm not saying you suck because this scene isn't working or whatever let's just figure mm. out how to make it work and and fix it and, and make it better so we that's a huge advantage I think just to having a shared kind of vision or language for years or you know we, even if it wasn't shared at the at the beginning we cultivated each other's tastes you know uh, directly or indirectly over the years. So that really adds up to a lot of just kind of shorthand and, and ease of communication that you don't necessarily always get with, with fresh compatriots, but even, you know, Justin, like we've only been working with for a few years. Mm -hmm. And even though we can't understand him through his extremely thick Missouri accent, <laughs> everybody knows about, um, no, um, but yeah, we went to the same, um, school uh at different times but there's also that kind of shared um value system and education and and those types of things so we were able to mesh together really quickly as well even though you know he's jumping into a 25 year 26 year relationship um but you know we all get along it's great yeah but justin is like the same you know, Justin's very similar to us. Uh, that's why he fits in. I mean, you know, he's just a great guy. You're standing right here. So I'm acting like you're not here, but like, oh, he'll just jump in as a producer and like move walls or like, Hey, I'll grab the, uh, the leaf blower and make this effect <laughs> happen. Or I'll do this thing. Like he's a very active producer and on an indie movie, like that is every bit of sweat that goes off screen is what's going to happen on screen. So we need just doers around us. And Justin was like always the first to jump in and, you know, do stuff. So he very rapid. I mean, we knew the quality of the mortuary collection and after the experience of working with Justin on mortuary collection, we were like, we need to get this dude on our movie. Cause it's just going to be so much better if Justin gets involved and we were right. Oh my God, this is just like uh, <laughs> smoke blowing. I know so I've never good. complimented you, Justin. I'm getting confused between the insults and the nice things. Yeah, 90% of it is the former. And for some reason, it's maybe it was the talk of barbecue. Something is like my mood. That's how it is. That's how it is. I'll slip you a 20 after the show. No, I. you know what's... That matters to me a great deal is is finding people that are willing to do what you said and jump in and you know move a flat if it need be and you know it doesn't matter what role you're in. I think a lot of that does come from like the Midwestern work ethic, the background, and, and what's great. Um, they mentioned that you know we're all kind of from Florida State, and that's how we've we met each other and also how we stayed in touch. But I think a lot of the Florida State graduates that you meet share that same kind of work ethic and that kind of um, I don't know attitude that you know, you, you're, you're part of something bigger than just your immediate responsibility. You're here because you want to tell a story and you want to like, you know, contribute the most that you can to, to bring the director's vision to life. So whether you're a boom op or, 
or a director of photography or PA, um, everybody kind of wants to give it all. And I think Marcus and Chris look for that and the team that they want to assemble. And that's something that matters a great deal for me too. And um, we're lucky enough to uh, be able to use a lot of the same people from the Mortuary Collection um, on the show as well. One of them was um, Kelly Marizago, who's our wonderful key makeup artist. And if you see, um, you know, the Bruja makeup and such, which now actually has fan art, even though it hasn't really come out yet. It's been on the festival circuit, but it's, it's, so, uh, it's so distinctive. Uh, and Kelly didn't go to Florida State, but again, we kind of assimilated her into this, this group of people that just have a great attitude and work really hard and care about what they do and care about the overall product. So um, yeah, that's just one example of the type of team we try to put together. And I don't know, it was, it, I was happy for the opportunity to get to help do that on the show. And it's like, that's what, you know, when you have, when you see people like Chris and myself that have a 20 year plus experience together, I mean, we have other filmmakers and friends that we also have those experiences with. And that's really like the dream is you just keep kind of collecting them like Pokemon, like, <laughs> oh man, this is like a great drama free, you know, DP and this guy's all and this makeup person. And then you really like looking to just keep assembling the Avengers. And so that when you're ready, you can use them and for us, we've had a marketing agency for a number of years and we've used different, you know, crew members from that. And then we'd kind of collect them and be like, oh, yes, this person's awesome. Let's keep keep them in the fold. And that's really why you do <laughs> what the power of the network is, you know, like that old adage of it's who, you know, it's really like you don't have to know people in advance. You just have to cultivate those relationships and know more people as you keep moving forward. <laughs> Where did you guys uh, film it? We shot in Burbank, California, mostly um, on our, like you said, we have a, a production company in Burbank and um, we have a small sound stage uh, and we, we built, we built the whole set uh, in there, That's shot nice. about 23 days uh, on the stage and then did a couple days in Puerto Rico for exteriors. And mm. um, yeah, it was, um, about as far as we could get away from the actual sure. location of the story but um um it was uh we did everything we could to make it feel i mean you tell us if it felt well, like well that's, well, that's <laughs> why i was curious i thought it looked great yeah the set the, awesome. uh, the hut the hut or whatever it is that they're staying in is so detailed and lived in so i was just curious if you guys had built that from scratch or um yeah. what yeah, that whole process big, was at. big warehouse in burbank we did. it, it we honestly didn't it. feel very authentic yeah, we oh, built cool. it and then we lived in it for like. Not that I'd been in a lot of like witch huts before, but like what I assume a witch hut would yeah. look like, it felt very authentic to me. Well, our, our production designer Bryce Perrin, he, I mean, he had some really amazing um, reference photos that he'd bring in and tape up, and you know, you would see the things he was constructing on the set, and you were like, "Man, this is there's a lot of stuff here. Are we sure?" And then you'd look at these reference photos, and you were like, "No, this is it. This is what this is supposed to look like." And he had a lot of experience making movies. Um, in different, you know, he worked on like one of the Anaconda movies, Blood Orchid or whatever, I'm making it up, I don't remember how many Anaconda, but he did work on one of them. And, uh, you know, some, so he had a lot of great experiences of um, things that would look right in this kind of space. And yeah, he packed that set full of goodness. And one of the when, coolest- Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say one of the coolest hacks um, that you can see in the film, if you look very, very carefully- We're is all that, hacks. You know, like, <laughs> yeah you can see how dare you <laughs> uh is that the, like you know independent film we don't have a lot of money and um there's always limitations you run up against and building a giant set um even on one soundstage is it's very costly and um so one of the things we ran up against right away is that man can we afford to actually build this complex that we need to build and bryce came to the table with this ingenious idea which is like you know Here's the trick. I think you learned this on another show playing around with this is like, I guarantee if we don't, if we build layers that kind of create an optical illusion that dangle in front of things, you won't look so far back through them that you won't realize that I have never built an entire wall behind the whole set. So some of the walls on the sets actually don't exist. They're just layer upon layer upon layer of burlap that's stained or, or foreground objects and such. And they just kind of like disappear into, you know, duvetine into like a uh, black curtain. So it was, it was a way that we couldn't, you know, couldn't afford to build all these walls. And we couldn't even afford the black curtain. We couldn't no, even afford the black right. curtain. Yeah. He, 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 would, he would go to the dumpster behind a, like a coffee shop and get the um, burlap coffee bags. <laughs> 
and, and stain yeah. them tea stain the or you know stain them brown or whatever and then hang those from the rafters and yeah, look, yeah. it was super smart cool. because his theory that i didn't realize like it was really just a theory before he decided to commit to it for this movie was like yeah if i put a shelving unit in front of a wall and i pack that full of like coyote skulls and potions or whatever you're never going to see the wall all you're going to see is the shelving unit that's packed full of stuff so why build a wall and walls are expensive i mean that's carpenters and all that stuff so we had shot a different movie uh just prior well a year prior on our set that was a one room chamber drama and we had four walls built for that and very much so like we were inspired by making that movie on our set to go like okay we can do it so our first draft of the script was like okay it'll be in like 10 different rooms or five different rooms and we'll just build the one room and keep like painted and change it up and it'll be you know we'll just keep using the same room and when bryce came in he was like i think we can build the whole complex we don't have to do anything shenanigans like that but I'm going to take your four walls and use them in the set design. So this entire complex only has like four physical, what you'd consider built flats, um, which was just like, amazing. and then he did the other crazy stuff. Like when you want, pause this right now and watch the movie on Netflix and then come on back and listen to the rest of the story. <laughs> but like the, she's in a room that is, has these bamboo, you know, uh, shoots for like a cage. That was a great wall replacement and it was a cost-effective thing but it also added so much to the storytelling because now we can see through the wall and we can see the rest of the complex the whole time and we can feel energy on the other side of the wall or on the other side of the camera at all times so that was like super liberating and what a cool uh approach and we didn't have ceilings either so we had to <laughs> wow. we had to find wow. ways to suggest like that a ceiling was there so we would hang things that you you know when you see the things hanging you just assume they're hanging from a, a ceiling but there's no ceiling we, we built like a little yeah. eight by eight triangle uh that we could throw into a corner if we were seeing up uh, and and would notice that there was no ceiling and we built another little eight by four piece that we could kind of hang but if we were to put a ceiling it would have cost too much because we would have had to have a i think a fire marshal there the whole time mm -hmm. um it's mm -hmm. just not safe so um yeah, a lot of tricks, uh, <laughs> tricks of the trade. So very clever. When did you oh, guys yeah. shoot this? Was this at all like during the pandemic, or was post was like, at all during the pandemic? We we wrapped two days before the lockdown in LA, um, so we had to cancel our wrap party, um, but we finished actual photography of the movie, which was amazing. And then we just, you know, this is a podcast, but the rooms you can see right now is where we sat for the next eight months doing post and VFX and all that stuff. And mm -hmm. um, we did all of that remotely. And um, I didn't even see the movie with my editor in the same room until we were mixing the final final thing for our premiere in, wow. uh, for Spain. And we didn't get to go to the premiere in Spain because <laughs> Americans weren't allowed into the EU. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, it was kind of a half and half pandemic movie. Um, so you and were we just were seeing all... like a lot of clips like before and then you finally got to see the whole thing? Is that how? Well, I got to see it, but I didn't get to see it with like, normally you oh, sit in the with room your with your editor, editor I got yeah, you. for like, I got you it. know, six, seven months. And yes. You're... And you're, it's a collaboration. Yes. Yeah. So we were basically on Zoom um, and he would email me things and I had all the media here on my computer so he could send me like the edit file and I could load it up and then mess with it and marcus could mess with it and then we could send it yeah. back and forth so it was very like manual <laughs> we had just yeah. been using google drive um and our assistant editor was someone else somewhere else so we would all just be just manually syncing stuff and making sure we had all everything up to date every morning and every evening which was kind of a pain but it actually took less time than driving to the office <laughs> sure to the, and right? they help like make some of these we had to make a lot of huge decisions uh and i think the fact that we were able to kind of remotely you know all of us have experience in editing and obviously not as gifted as matt blundell our editor but like we can kind of hack things together and be like i think this will work so our movie i think the assembly cut which was close to what was written was like two and a half hours long so that filled us with a little bit of a despair because we were like listen for a movie at this budget range we can't be this long <laughs> like we have to kind of get to the goods and so we had to do some really radical 
rethinking and especially in a world with no reshoots like we've always made the indie movies we've made we've always like well let's keep a wall here or let's you know we can call the actor back and we can just kind of tighten this up if we need to because we have the luxury of having a sound stage couldn't do any of that so we would have discussions about like wouldn't it be cool to rewrite this scene or reshoot this and then we'd go like well it's impossible there's no <laughs> way we can do production so let's just keep working it so we'd have to you know we'd get like a sequence where it was like there was one sequence in the movie. I'm not going to tell you which one. Watch it and see if you can figure out. But which, which was two scenes originally and in the script. And we were like, I think Chris was very adamant about like, I think this has to be one scene. Like we can't go back to the well. We have to just make this one scene. And we had very actively like shot it with different cost different wardrobe on our actors to make it feel like two scenes. We shot it where Chris flipped the camera around to make it feel like two scenes. And then we had to like, find a way to marry them together and it was very radical like all right let me just jump in and while while matt is actually cutting the real movie i'll just start like slapping something together and see if it feels like something and it yeah. did and we had to do some vfx to make it all come together but it like was the like bruja she's got a white eye one white eye and we decided to flip half of her shots yeah which you can do sometimes in movies. You can just kind of flip an image and nobody notices. But now, like, she was very asymmetrical. So we had to digitally... Put her good eye on her bad <laughs> eye. <laughs> Put her bad eye on the other side. Yeah, it was, oh, my God. It was intense. And we had changed some of the wardrobe, which we rarely change any wardrobe in the movie. But this is the one time we had slightly different wardrobe. So we had to figure out ways to make that work. And, you know, um, that's what you do. <laughs> when yeah. you're trying to make stuff work <laughs> when, yeah, when you get... can't reshoot a scene <laughs> so we we got it got it down to 90 minutes but there was a lot of a lot of sacrifices in, there. Sure. in fact the blu-ray that we're doing has like 20 almost 30 minutes of deleted scenes or extended scenes and that's just the stuff that we think is good enough to show people like there's still 20 or 30 minutes of stuff that i'm embarrassed to show people <laughs> so um <laughs> yeah. there's um yeah, there's a there's a lot on the floor in this one, but I think it makes it move along and you know not overstay its welcome, and hopefully people are wanting more instead of less when it when it ends. So, yeah. When did Netflix uh, get attached, and how how was that for you guys to have someone like Netflix interested? It was exciting. Um, that was we we premiered um, at the. At the a pretty prestigious or very i think a very prestigious film festival in spain um there's i think there's kind of like three big festivals that you want if you have like a horror film that you want to play at and that's one of the three and in, and in our case it was the one we wanted the most because our movie does have um some spanish language in it and um obviously they speak spanish in spain so we were while we were making the movie we were like it would be great to have this movie premiere at that festival if we were so lucky and and we were uh you know but unfortunately we weren't allowed to be there uh, but on the backs of that normally you would go to a festival like this with an independent film and you would have a, a sales team and you would take lots of meetings and you'd have early screenings for distributors you know mm -hmm. and if you're lucky you get into some sort of bidding war and everything's exciting um, we didn't have any of that it was basically like our salespeople emailed 10 people in Hollywood <laughs> and said do you like a movie um, and luckily there was a there was a really good response um, I think we had five-ish, mm -hmm. like legitimate yeah. people—not uh, people, but entities that were interested—and we kind of had like a mini bidding. It was harder to whip up the like frenzy that you get at a festival when there's like 500 people standing in line around the block. Or yeah. I mean, we've had a couple films we produced that premiered it in Toronto, and and for their midnight movies, they play in this. I don't know if you've been there, but it's a massive. It's not a movie theater. It's like a performing arts theater that they set up to be a theater for the mm -hmm. two weeks and I think it's like close to 1500 person capacity which is bananas I mean so it's like a city block people are wrapped all the way around it waiting in line for it and everybody's all excited and it gets it just gets everybody psyched about the movie and so we didn't have that capability because of COVID but um I think people they saw something they thought there would be an audience and um they made an offer and, you know, it's hard to turn down 250 million potential viewers. Yeah. Um, so that was pretty, pretty exciting. Um, so we're excited to have it out there and 
and have people be able to watch it. You know, and hopefully people will discover it who aren't just diehard horror fans. And because there's a very little, there's a very low barrier to entry. Almost everybody has a has stolen their mom's uh, Netflix account. Yeah. Um, and for us but, too, uh, like we dream the whole time we made this movie, we were thinking, you know, I mean, it's very ambitious thinking, but we were like, man, this is going to be awesome in theaters. Like we would think about the audience the whole time and we think about the theatrical experience and we mixed it, you know, the best way possible and the highest, you know, 4k, all that stuff. And with theaters gone, truthfully, Netflix is the biggest possible worldwide release so for us that's super exciting you know like if you can't just drive to a movie theater anywhere every single person who cares about watching a movie has netflix so that's super cool and uh you know there's a lot of wonderful streamers out there and there's a wonderful wonderful platforms out there but there's something about it just be you know but a lot of times it's like oh you can watch it but you gotta be on apple tv plus but it's really great so just subscribe for a week or whatever like there's, yeah get a get a get a trial and all this get stuff. the free so, seven yeah. day trial like i knew my mom wouldn't be able to do that right like if it was on peacock you know she'd be like what i can't it's free mom just get i don't know how to do it but netflix everybody knows how to do so it really does feel like you can see it in a movie theater the same way, you know, where it's like, Hey, it's out in theaters, just drive down the street. And it's there. It's very, when it's on Netflix, it's like, it's out there, go see it. it you can just yeah. watch it. And people and are like, Oh my God, we can just see it right now. <laughs> especially a movie like this that deals with multiple uh, nationalities and addresses some of the immigrant story. And uh, Netflix, I think, in my opinion, has been the best, um, I don't know, they, like they've been a real champion of foreign language um, or mixed language um, TV and, and film. And I think have really been responsible for, especially in America, making Americans okay with seeing subtitles from time to time. Um, you know, I like that, that show Narcos, um, by the time you get to the second or third season, it's like, all Spanish. And I didn't even realize, you know, I get to the, I'm halfway through and I'm like, has anybody spoken English in like an episode or two? And um, so I think that's really exciting because it's opening us up to um, a lot more stuff from around the world. And uh, even though ours just has a small amount of Spanish, but it also has Nahuatl, which is a ancient Mexican language, uh, pre-Columbian. And so you know, that just kind of comes and goes and it feels very natural. And I think um, the access that Netflix has to the that worldwide community um, and the different languages is exciting. I mean, they, it's like 245 different, something like that, mm-hmm. territories that they prepare it for with different mm-hmm. subtitles and uh, whatever the number is, it's like more than countries, I think. It's like, there are so many different regional versions that they do and make it accessible to so many different people so that's that's going to be exciting just to see how it you know we've seen people posting in japan and and the netherlands and all kinds of france mexico obviously um about the film so that usually on a smaller budget film you don't usually get that kind of reach especially all at once which is exciting like we're hitting every country on the same day which is pretty cool. And the other crazy thing is like, you know, we've, we've produced other through soapbox films. We produce other like independent films and there's usually like another person's logo in front of the movie, but for Netflix, it kind of happened. I mean, we had a sales team obviously, but the, the deal was made directly through us. So we're the only, you know, like (laughs) an independent film dream of like, Oh, it's just our logo on it and that's it. And it's going to be on Netflix. which we couldn't believe it was outstanding. So, yeah, I mean, we were very lucky the whole time. You know, anytime you make a movie, you're hopeful it's going to be good. Um, and that, you know, I don't still don't know if it's, I like it. I hope you like it, uh, <laughs> Justin and, and uh, yeah, Sarah. Like so it. that's great. Not you, T. Justin Ross, the other Justin. Oh, oh, well, well, I, I, like it. I do like it. I have to ask you, because I, I have a very... Uh, fear of big fear of snakes so mm-hmm. the snake scene i was like i don't know if i can do it i don't know if i can do it yeah I likewise it. i watched the whole thing and i was like okay that was that yeah. was a, yeah so what was that what was filming that one like for you guys that was um that, that was, was really fine for great. us yeah, it was great. <laughs> we were on the other side of a wall <laughs> um, 
Yeah, that uh, that was exciting. That, that's actually one of the few. We have lots of kind of secret VFX. There, there's some digital effects in the movie that are, you know, you see it and you're like, that has to be digital. But um, there's a bunch of kind of hidden ones here and there. And, you know, like we said, we swap a eyeball <laughs> left or right here and there. But that scene has zero uh, post-production effects at all. So that was all real uh, in camera. We had real snakes uh, doing exactly, it was amazing. We, they were doing exactly what we, what Marcus had written, I mean, right on the page. And then what I had drawn and what our storyboard artist had drawn and what we had, uh, our camera, my cameraman, uh, Adam Lee, uh, he and I filmed it with like rubber snakes and and our first AD as a stand-in. And we did a ton of prep because we, we have worked with lots of animals over the years and we know people say it's, hard it's not it's not that hard if you know if you know how hard it's going to be if you know if you're, if you're prepared for it to be difficult it's not you're not surprised it's a lot of time <laughs> so yeah it just takes time and um patience and but we were prepared to be like well i don't know i, I hadn't worked as far as i know i don't think i'd actually worked with snakes before but almost every other type of <laughs> elephants and dogs and ostriches and all kinds of things sloths uh, wolves so we Keep were going. ready for it not to <laughs> penguins. Penguins. I don't know if I have a penguin. Um, I've done penguins. Lots of animals, <laughs> lots of kids, and we were prepared. We had a kind of a backup plan. We're like, if they don't do what we want them to do, here's how we're going to film it, and then we'll like piece it together and editing. And but they showed up uh, and did exactly what we wanted them to do. The, I mean, obviously with the help of their trainer and their wrangler, and um, our actress Bridget, who. She doesn't have like a phobia of snakes, but she has no experience with snakes. has has been raised by TV like and movies, yeah, like you know, to fear them, like Indiana Jones tells us we should. And um, when the day came to work with them, and the the man had showed up with his crate of snakes, I was prepared to, you know, I was like, let's go, let's go meet the snakes, let's see them. They're not, they're not venomous in real life. They're just, I, I don't even know if they're constrictors. I think they just like swallow things eggs and stuff um but they're very scary looking i mean they're they're that's why we chose very large this, <laughs> this breed of snake is because they're they look like the way you would imagine a horrible snake uh, that was going to kill you would look and um she didn't want to even see them or meet them or anything um she wanted to experience the scene in the same way that the the character would which is she's tied up and they sneak up on her from behind. And uh, so we actually have on camera in the, in the edit, the very first time that she even, that they ever touched her or anything. Um, we actually used that, that take cause it was so authentic and, uh, and real. And I don't know how she, she mm -hmm. did it. Cause it was. Um, Some really no. good acting, very good yeah, acting. Oh, and the thing is like we, she really pushed herself to go to those lengths i mean as filmmakers we don't really come from like the william friedkin school of like we're just gonna shoot a shotgun and see what happens and don't tell them we're gonna hurt them this time like we're very conscientious filmmakers especially when you're doing something with this much on-screen violence and this much intensity so you have to like be careful and always you know keep the trust of your of your actors but Bridget is so uh, remarkable. Like we would make things as easy as possible. We'd be like, okay, here are your things that are binding you to the wall and they have tear away Velcro straps. So if you feel at all that nervous, you can just break out. And she was like, throw those things away. Tie me up for real. I don't want to be able to get out of this. And it was like, oh my God. All right. Commitment. Yeah. You're going to do it. Great. It worked. Yeah. The other yeah. fun um, thing about those snakes uh Chris, why don't you talk about the eye real quick? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, so cool. I, I don't when, know if fun and snakes really go. No, oh, this is fun. <laughs> this fun. is fun. You go. Like, well, no one's going to see this on first pass, but when, when you pause it right now and rewatch the snake scene, since you've already watched it one time, <laughs> uh, viewers, uh, check this out. This is pretty cool. Yeah, the, the guy shows up with his, I think he, yeah, between three and five snakes, because we, we only needed two for the scene, but you never know. Like, some snakes are better going from like point shy. a to point b and some are <laughs> shy snakes some, some are better with this like, my super aggressive snake <laughs> some are better at accents and some are much funnier um but, <laughs> but um that one's yeah, a lazy slither i don't yeah, like how yeah. he's so <laughs> lazy yeah. What's he's wait, wait but, you're lunch, a mexican but, snake <laughs> but he brings you know he brings he brings some options and he's like 
hey, I just wanted to tell you, I brought I brought all these snakes, and the, there's the one that's my favorite snake that's like the biggest and the best at doing all the stuff. Unfortunately, started molting, or I guess that's what they yeah. call it, not molting mm-hmm. or shedding or molting, you know whatever. Molting, yeah. I don't know if that's a bird thing or a snake thing, but started doing the thing where they're going to shed their skin um, the night before we filmed. And he's like, so all of her skin or his or her, the skin looks fine. But the first thing that goes is like their eye goes white, like cataract kind of look. So he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about that. I've got some more snakes. Um, just want to let you know. And I was like, oh, that's the best news I've ever heard. Cause our, cause our bruja has a, has a white eye and this thing. And like, I couldn't have, we, we wouldn't have written that into the, the, the script because we never would have thought, you know, you can't put makeup on a snake or whatever or put <laughs> contact lenses on them or anything. So it was just this really happy accident, you know, that we, you just got to look out for those when you're making movies and, and jump on them when they present themselves. And it was uh, just a yeah, cool that was awesome. serendipity, I guess. Also made it like, well, I don't know if it's proof, but you know, we could have easily maybe just gotten one snake and made it feel like two snakes. So for me, it's like, nope, that's the one with the white eye. It just came in through the window. And then the other one is a moment later, <laughs> different snake yeah. with a better accent. The fat one. <laughs> <laughs> and Sarah, in case you're wondering, the snake's names are Indy and Sarah Michelle Geller. Well, <laughs> now you just think. made me like the snakes. Dang it. <laughs> but they both they're murdered cute. two they're crew great. members uh, off camera. So uh, well, you're sad. They probably deserved so. it. Now that you love those snakes, know that. <laughs> Put them in the special thanks. Those crew members probably deserved it. I mean, Sarah, Sarah Michelle Geller would not hurt. Yeah, too close. No. no. A nice <laughs> person. They're great. Slowly swallowed them like a shell Silverstein. It took a long time and no one stopped them. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was like three no, days. It's up to my boom pole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, oh speaking God. of all these fascinating creatures you've gotten to work with, I have to ask about what it's like to work with the Muppets. Which one gives no. you the hardest time? <laughs> the yeah. Muppets are more challenging. Awesome. Uh, we, we've been, um, our company, Soapbox Films, we've been working with the Muppets for... 11 12 years maybe um we i don't know if you've seen any of those viral videos that came out like like bohemian rhapsody every long time ago bohemian (laughs) rhapsody we did that and oh cool skateboarding dog and stuff like that um so yeah uh we've been we've been working with them a long time and we just did a a new project with them that's um, coming out around halloween on disney plus um so look out for that uh but yeah, it's it, it's, it's way gorier than the old ways. They're challenging <laughs> because um, every shot is basically a visual stunt, effects. you know, um, a special effects, if you will. Uh, plus, we have to do a lot of visual effects to, to to remove people. But you know, if you say Kermit picks up a hamburger and hands it to his friend, like that's like five meetings we have to have to figure out how to do that, like. He can't hold things. He can't hand things. He can't. Well, what kind of hamburger is it? Is it does it have grease on it? Is that going to ruin this like sixty thousand dollar puppet that was handmade by somebody in New Jersey? Um, so every everything with them is challenging. We have to build the sets up higher. Four feet off you know, the ground. So the, yeah. You can't see me because you're on a podcast, but the people hold their arms up above their head to to do the puppet. So if they're so everything has to be up that high and if the if the performer is six feet tall you know the puppet might be seven feet in the air and um if they're talking to a, another human then that human needs to be standing four feet in the air so that the puppet comes up to their chest or whatever um so it's, it's just really it's, it's it's a lot of planning a lot of hard work um because and you also want to make it funny and enjoyable so it's like you've got to you got to plan 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 and then but still have the freedom to, for them to improvise and be funny and be loose. And, you know, so there's a lot that goes into it just from a strategic um, standpoint so that you're not, yeah. you don't want to crush the <laughs> creativity. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot. And for most, every time a puppet has two hands moving, that's two people, at least two people um, yeah. puppeteering it because the main hand is in the mouth uh, or the head. So a lot of choreography, essentially, you know, it's like a, mm-hmm. it's like a stunt. Um, it's not as dangerous as doing a lot of stunts, but it's about the same type of work um, and planning and rehearsal to pull these things off because there's a lot of moving parts. And, uh, but it's always, you know, you get to set and it, 
It's like making oh, it's magic. Once, once you start filming, it's like you're making a Pixar movie in real time. You know, you're not waiting for rendering and, and the computers to do stuff. It's like action and, and you've got something amazing. So it's, it's a really different experience, but it, it, it's helped prepare us for a lot of these other types of projects we do where if we want to have a, a demon, you know, with that's essentially a puppet or a man in a suit or whatever, like it's the exact same process for us. Um, the end result's different, but the um, the experience of making it, you know, that that experience transfers over pretty pretty readily, and um, everything we do pretty much has got some sort of world creation or puppets or animation or computer animation or whatever or all of the above. Um, so that's just that's just kind of the fun yeah. of filmmaking for us, you know, the way we grew up making stuff when we were children. And it was. Certainly like, yeah, that was all part of the discussions again, like right in the beginning of the script, it was like, Hey, at the end of this movie, spoiler alert, but not for those who already paused twice and watched the movie two times um, that there is, it was like, Hey man, we're going to have like a creature at the end of this, right? Like we're going to pay an awesome <laughs> company to build a thing and, and let's do it. And um, that was always like in the beginning and not intimidating, like Chris said for us, because it's like, okay, cool. It'll be a puppet. We know how it's going to work. Um, and then we knew we'd probably have to do some CG enhancements just because we aren't, we don't have the biggest budget, but we knew we didn't want to have a fully CG creature. Cause that was like out of our, not, not that we couldn't pull it off, but we knew I've seen enough. We've seen enough movies at this range where you're like, this is a great movie. And then you get to the final 15 minutes and you're like, fuck, they didn't land it. Like they had no idea how, what they were going to do at the end. And they kept thinking the whole time, like, we'll figure it out. We'll get something, just get a plate and we'll do it. And so we knew we wanted to capture something in camera, just like Chris was saying about um, the Muppets. Like you're making a Pixar movie in real time when you're on set and you have a DP who's awesome and you have, crafts you know amazing people around you they can make a cool shot happen in camera when you see it even if it's not per in the case of like a puppet performance that's supposed to you know a demon you, you can see it and be like okay there's something there and now we just have to like tweak it a little bit more once we get into that stage so we knew those effects we could handle everything else was kind of all the other effects in the movie were written you know like just beyond our reach of what we knew we could pull off because if it's everything's exactly as you know you can pull it off then there's why are you doing it um so for us that's part of the excitement of like okay cool we'll shoot practical smoke here but this one's going to be cg smoke because it has to move a certain way so chris has to learn how to do like a smoke simulation and make it move and and do all that stuff. And, you know, for other bigger stunts in there, if there are wire removals, I mean, that's just like removing rods on a puppet and removing puppeteers, you know, so you, there's a way to do it. And, and then that's also like, if a filmmaker doesn't have a lot of experience doing that, they might try to lock off the shots a lot more. You know, you see that all the time where people are like, Oh, I, I can't move the camera. Right. Cause it's an effect. And it's like, please move the camera because otherwise it's going to look like shit. And so Chris would move the camera. So like Chris, wouldn't even get plates shots because he's like, ah, we can, it, we'll, we know how to paint that out. It'll work. <laughs> so sometimes we'd be in the edit and, or in the visual effects side and be like, God dang, if only we had a plate, that would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the day, we were able to like use the same skills that we would do on a Muppet shoot to like remove, like I said, puppeteers and rods and gack all over the place and just do it with a different purpose in this movie and uh, make it look as good as we could possibly make it look. Well, the it's other really fun benefit, I was just going to say the other substantial benefit of having practical things on set is that talent can interact with it. And oh, 100%. feed off of that and can, mm -hmm. you know, really kind of harness the emotion, whether, you know, snakes are practical, but it's kind of the same idea where if you have a creature that exists and that's coming towards you. And I know um, we had such a great cast, but they they really fed off of all that. So oh yeah, that's, that's like, and, and you don't have to pretend. Like I mean, especially mm -hmm. with with the Muppets. Like if you're well, you know if you're goofing around between takes or whatever, and the and the puppeteer starts talking to you with Kermit or Rolf or something, like you're standing there looking a man in the eye or a woman, uh, whoever the puppeteer is, who's standing right there, and she, they're not ventriloquists. They're not like hiding their mouth or like they're just talking and but it's i mean even anybody would just you would just start talking to the to the puppet like you just start talking to kermit like it's a real thing because it's so convincing 
and it's i mean it doesn't have legs half the time and so you know it's like it, there's nothing about it that's real it's a sock with eyes that don't move or blink and there's no tongue or um their hands can't move <laughs> they don't have legs and there's literally a person a foot to the side that's just saying the words but you you buy it because it's like the character is there and the yeah it's easy to do so i can understand how actors who are professional pretenders you know it's just a nice um, oh yeah head start you know when you have something that's really there that you can just you're not pretending anymore you're just yeah. reacting and, and most of acting is more. reacting i mean that's what anytime they're in a scene and you see two wonderful actors together they're better because they're watching the other person and being like, what is this energy you're giving me? So if you have like a dude in a suit with a giant demon head, everybody on the cameraman, everybody has the same vision in front of them and can do the appropriate things uh, once it comes in versus like, eh, there's a tennis ball. Eh, it's going to be scary. We'll figure it out. You know, so that was, we tried to keep everything as practical as possible uh, and knew that just like, practical effects give you so much bonus. It's just like working with animals where they'll do something totally unexpected. And you're like, fuck, that's so much better than just like not having an animal there and just doing some, it's like they're improving and aware and, and present the whole time. So it's, it's great. That's awesome. I was uh, just watching some behind the scenes footage from Jurassic Park of all things. And they, they had this similar discussion oh, yeah. of like, you know, they did have some practical stuff, but because they were discovering a lot of CGI, there were a lot of scenes where, Jeff Goldblum or Sam Neill uh, were reacting to Steven Spielberg yelling through a, a megaphone, like making dinosaur noises through a megaphone and just that strange process. So, um, yeah. And they figured it out then, like anyway. if you move the camera, it's better, you know, like they talk about that in that documentary. And that was from 1992. Yeah. When was Jurassic Park 5? 93. 93. Yeah. yeah. Like, but there's still filmmakers who you'll see it today. I mean, it happens all the time. It's like, oh, but I can't move the camera, right? Because it's going to be right. a green screen or whatever. And you're like, no, if you, I mean, it depends, but if you move the camera, we have ways to deal with it. We can track the camera and suddenly everything like comes together excitedly. If you would normally sure. move the camera, please move the camera. Yeah. Don't, don't change your language just for this one <laughs> shot. Cause it'll stick out like a sword. And problem. that's what like happens. Like you get to an end of a movie and you're like, suddenly the whole, all the language is different because the filmmaker was like, well, I was told yeah. I could, I shouldn't move it because it'd be expensive if I moved it. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you're Wes Anderson and it's like, <clears throat> yeah, a lock off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah lock please off. don't move the camera. If you're Wes Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> but, for this shot, uh, I thought I'd just angle it into a corner instead of like dead center. <laughs> it's easier, right? That would be confusing. <laughs> Yeah. Guys, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, Justin, thanks for coming back. Wow. Um, yeah, this great to meet you guys. And of course, for everybody listening, you can watch The Old Ways on Netflix right now. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. Please do. Please do. Thanks. Watch Thank it you. on repeat. You've watched it three times during this show. <laughs> <laughs>